Retirement in this country is broken. We work ourselves to death and miss out on so many of life's experiences along the way. There's got to be a better way. David Adams is a certified financial planner and CPA and founder of David Adams Wealth Group, an independent firm that offers securities through Raymond James Financial Services and is here to help you learn how to retire while you work and develop a different way of thinking when it comes to managing your money. Hello and welcome to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. We are here on News Radio 1510 WLAC, and you can hear us every Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central Time. So, again, welcome. You can also submit your questions throughout the week by going to retirewhileyouwork.com, clicking Contact Us, and we will do our best to answer your questions each week on the air. Now, I'm here today in studio with one of my partners and dear friends, Andrea Risk. Hello, Andrea. Hey, David. How's it going? It is going good. How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was great. Not long enough, but great. Never. Never. (laughs) No vacation's ever long enough. I'm with you. Well, we're glad to have you here. So thanks for spending your time with us here today. And Andrea is going to be answering some of your questions, our top five most compelling questions in our next segment. And we're also here today with a special guest and friend, Mr. Teddy Pins of Radius Residential Partners, a very well-known real estate expert in town. Hello, Teddy. Hey, David. Great to be here. Glad you're here, man. How was your Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. Had a nice time with family and relatively quiet. So I enjoyed that. Good. Well, glad you're here. I'm excited about your segment. And first off, I want to kind of reiterate the reason that we do the show every week and the passion behind it. I've, as a financial advisor, I've been doing this going on 15 years, and I've seen a lot of people come in my office, including my own father, where they've worked themselves almost to death sometimes to 65, 70, whatever the age is, and they just stop. And now they're wondering what the next chapter looks like. And there's a lot of confusion as to what retirement really is. And I think in this country, the whole definition of retirement is antiquated, and there's a better way to do it. And so Retire While You Work is really about finding ways to help change your mindset when it comes to money. And whether that's taking more vacations with your family, and it's taking that second career, that dream job, maybe when you're 45 or 50, and finding ways to kind of break the mold. And I want to lead, help lead a mo- movement to get a lot of you to adapt that mindset, including myself and a lot of my clients. And I've been having some really incredible conversations behind this concept in my office, and I'm looking forward to continuing doing it here every week on News Radio 1510 WLAC. Now, changing gears a little bit, let's talk about now that the election is over, the current political environment, and what that means to your finances. I'm already sweating. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's a it's a touchy subject, David. It's a big transition from retirement to talking about the election, but it, it's very important when it comes to money. Absolutely, and I know you've gotten a bunch of calls over the last couple of weeks about what a Trump presidency is going to mean for oh, people's money. Nobody, so. nobody's asked that. Nobody's <laughs> concerned. Well, right. before we jump into the election again, you're if you're just tuning in. If you have questions for us in our in our next segments, you can submit them to us during the week or anytime by going to retirewhereyouwork.com. And clicking contact us, or you can always give me a call at the office, 615-435-3644. Okay, so let's talk about the election and what the results mean to your money. Now, I've had tons of calls, as Andrea just mentioned, you know, asking for advice on what this Trump presidency could mean to your finances. And obviously, I have a lot of clients that are excited and just as many that are upset. 
But the reality is, is Donald J. Trump is now our new president, and that's not going to change. And the market's already kind of putting its reactions out there. So here are my two cents. In the long runs, and I always believe this, and I believed it in 2008 and 2012 when I had the same type of anxiety coming from clients and the same calls, that the markets will be just fine. You know, the U.S. economy is the strongest in the world and it continues to hum along. You know, and in the short term, yeah, we may suffer some volatility as we get to know our next president and find out how he's going to shape his cabinet and what his policies are going to look like. There's a lot of questions out there as to what you know, Donald Trump is, is really going to do and what Donald Trump we're going to actually see starting in January. But I also want to remind you that the president, regardless of who it is, shouldn't change your investing strategy. And I cannot stress this enough. We have to focus on the things that we can control, you know, which are things like saving consistently and decreasing debt, investing for the long term. You know, and it's, cru- it's crucial to do things like determine your risk tolerance before you start investing so that you can stick to your long term plan when there's a big world event or something like an election without jumping ship through all the different market cycles and getting in and out of the market. And, you know, elections, they do tend to have short-term effects on the markets. But let me say this again, to allow your emotions, whether they're positive or negative with the results, or to go and dictate any changes in your portfolio would be a serious mistake. It doesn't mean that you don't make any changes, but, you know, every meeting I've had this past week, and I realistically, I expect it to be this way for the coming months, was this, you know, do we go all into stocks because we feel great about the market or do we go all cash because we're fearful of what Donald Trump's going to do? And, you know, neither one of these is right. They're both too extreme. Both of these decisions to go all in or go all out in any market environment or any political situation, it's just too extreme. So what I've been doing and what I've been telling my clients is to make 10% type of shifts, small shifts, depending on the client, but meaningful shifts. So whether you go, um, you add 10% more equity because you are feeling a little bit more optimistic or you want to get a little more defensive, make sure these are small changes because any large change could significantly affect your long-term plan if you're caught on the wrong side of the transaction. So very important. Um, We're about to go to a break and here in a few minutes, we're going to start taking some of our listeners questions and I could go on and on about the election and I'm certain I'll do it again next week. You've been tuning in to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And again, when we come back from break, we're going to answer our top five most compelling questions of the week and hear what's on your minds when it comes to your money and life. Back in a few. Welcome back to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And we're about to take some of your questions throughout the week. But before we do that, right before the break, we were talking about the election. And I just had another point, an interesting point I wanted to bring up. You know, I find it very fascinating that Donald Trump spent about half of what Clinton did on his way to presidency. His camp- campaign, I believe, spent, Andrea, wasn't it? It was like $240 million. Yep. Through mid-October, mm-hmm. compared with around, was it double that? About four hundred and fifty million by Clinton. Yeah, it's the the numbers are astounding, and as of course, as a you know, as a PR practitioner and as someone who yeah. who does this for a living, it's Trump's PR power is just unbelievable. He knows how to get earned media. 
as opposed to paid media. Well, they say, I mean, he probably got what up to a billion dollars or so in free exposure just by being himself and being. <laughs> well, he's he's being the apprentice Donald Trump, right? He's right. being he's being that reality show star that he is. Well, and, and I did, I'm, you know, the CPA nerd just came out in me. I'm sitting here doing some math, and that equals around $850,000 that Trump spent per electoral vote versus about $2 million spent by Clinton. Just interesting. So he yeah. got a lot of free marketing. <laughs> Absolutely. PR. There's your lesson. David, if I can teach your audience nothing else, folks, that is the difference in PR and advertising. <laughs> PR is still the only thing that'll put you on the front cover of a magazine. So is there such a thing as bad PR? Apparently, no. I mean, <laughs> according to Trump and according to the, what he's lived in the last year, <laughs> I mean, I, I have cringed so many times at some of the things he said, I think, as we all as a nation have collectively sure. and said, how can he say that? How can he get away but, with you know, that? I think it I think it proves an interesting point. You know, I look back to when Obama was running and his message of hope and change in 2008. It was really a brilliant market. It was a, it was a brilliant marketing message at the time that really resonated with so many of the voters. And I think this time in 2016, that kind of, you know, get rid of the establishment, that anti-establishment message, it, it worked. And people finally got, they, they became indifferent to hearing all of his antics. And they said, you know what, this is a vote against the establishment. I, I agree with you. And I think it's more, <laughs> Trump's kind of verve is a lot more kind of like, where's the beef or something like that, right? right. Like it's it's more of a campaign so let's see what he can do in all Yeah, regardless of how it turns out, I mean, if nothing else, he's, the, the system's been shooken up a little bit, and maybe it'll we'll, we'll start seeing less career politicians down the way. So who knows? It's interesting, but the money part clearly is fascinating. I mean, just the spend. I'm just hoping that they can turn some of that money around. Or put it back towards the national debt, right? Yeah. If we can start saving right? some of that money. There's, <laughs> that's a lot of money for a campaign. It is. It is. But again, we'll, we'll go to some of your questions, but stay focused on your plan and not Fox or CNN, please. I beg my parents this all the time in their retirement. And so now that it's over, actually, it's probably really just beginning. You know, who is he going to choose for his cabinet? Who's, you know, what's his first tax bill going to look like? I mean, there's going to be more and more and more on this, but focus on the things that matter. So let's, with that being said, let's transition. And Andrea, can you give us our first question of the week? And, you know, go to our website, retirewhileyouwork.com and click contact us during the week. We'd love to hear your question and we'll do our best to get it answered each week here on the show. All, All right. right. So first question, David, I'm a 59-year-old woman. My husband is 64. We have a little over 700000 in our retirement accounts and we owe $100,000 on our mortgage. What age should we take Social Security? Okay, Social Security. Well, this is, you know, I, I get this question, Andrew, at least three times a week. Um, always different situations, of course. You know, but it, it always depends. I have to say that. And, and I strongly encourage this person uh, to get with their advisor on this. Now, the amount that you have in retirement, I think you mentioned a little over $700,000. They owe about a hundred on their mortgage. Really, the amount that you have in retirement or the debt that you owe doesn't affect the social security numbers as far as how much you're going to get or how it's going to be taxed. But it does, however, it really factors into the overall planning. So you can take social security as early as 62 for most people, you know, and 60% of people actually take it at that age. They take it early, even with reduced benefits. Now I've seen a lot of times this decision is made based out of fear because they're afraid it's going to go away, or maybe it's because they just need it, which is okay. Um, a lot of times it's just a lack of education about how Social Security works. So 66 typically, and for some at six, age 67 is your full retirement age. 
And 70 is the age that that's the longest you can defer it and when you have to take it. Typically, you get about a 7 to 8% raise by waiting. So I love the idea of waiting as long as you can, you know, at least to your full retirement age. If you don't need the money, you should wait to your 70. So to answer this question, and the first question I would ask this, uh, this listener is, you know, does your husband need the money now or can he wait for that higher amount? And what is your other income? If you've got... If your expenses are eighty thousand a year, and between a pension and some part-time income, you have that eighty thousand. Put this off until you absolutely need it, and then if not, um, you know it, it may be a good time to take it. But definitely don't do this out of fear or without talking to an advisor. Another question I'd ask Andrea is, how is his health? Um, if his health is poor, and let's say, you know, it says he's fifty. Or husband is sixty-four. You said, is that right? Yeah, the husband's sixty-four, okay. and. You know, I, I think we look at this scenario a couple ways. My, I, I th- my question here is, if they're both still working, what does that mean? And if they're right. not both still working, what does that mean? Yeah, so if they're both still working and they're under full retirement age, then you want to be careful to take it early because you actually can reduce your benefits. So I would tell the husband at 64 to do his best to wait until full retirement age, 66. And then for the, um, for the spouse who's 59... Um, do the same if she can, or she maybe one of them takes it early. But it's really that balancing act on how much they need in retirement. It's always better to wait. Where else can you go and get a 7 to 8% guaranteed rate of return? You can't. Um, so, you know, and another thing they can do is they might maybe they live off some of their retirement assets until they're 66 so that they continue getting that raise with Social Security. So a lot of ways to look at this. Um, I'd encourage her to um, give us a call or to meet with her advisor. So great question. Okay, next question. If I take money from an IRA, I believe there is a period during which I can return part or all of it. What is that yep. period? What penalties, if any, will I occur? And what happens if I can't return the money as I planned? Okay, so the question is from an IRA, not a 401k. So I want to make that dis- that distinction. So typically with an IRA, you have the 60-day window. And a lot of times people will do this from their traditional IRA, Um, And, you know, there's no tax or penalty if you reverse it within that 60-day period. So you kind of get a free get-out-of-jail-free card if you, let's say you borrow $50,000 to pay off a debt. If you return it in 60 days, you're good. Now, if you can't return it, the normal um, taxes would apply, and those taxes would be based on, you know, if you took a $50,000 distribution, that would be added to your income, and that would be taxed at the ordinary income tax rates, not the capital gains. And then you would have that 10% penalty if you're under the age of 59 and a half. So it's not the best way. It's, it's really just got to be a short kind of, hey, I'm in a pickle situation. Now, Andrea, on a 401k, you can actually take a loan and pay yourself back, you know, but I always say it's still debt. And, you know, I've been, for 10 years, I served as one of Dave Ramsey's endorsed local providers and taught his financial peace class So I'm, and watched my parents also grow up paying cash for everything. And so that's really in my blood, and I'm not a big fan of debt. But, you know, the 401k, at least you're not going to take that 10% hit if you need a quick loan. But I wouldn't make that a long-term solution. So if you borrow against a 401k, is there an interest rate? Is there a rate of return in paying it back? Yeah, there can, yes, there can be. You're paying yourself back, which is in- interesting. So some people <laughs> think they're paying themselves the interest, but you're also, you have the opportunity cost of being out of the market. So if you pull $50,000 as a loan and that money's not invested and let's say the market goes up, you could potentially miss out there. It could go the other way as well. So it's not a great strategy, but it can be if you're, hey, you're in a pickle and you don't want to ravage your IRA and take that penalty, look at the 401k. But it's definitely not something I promote. Got it. Okay. So 
super quick education for the listeners here. What's the difference between an IRA and a 401k? Yeah, so an IRA is an individual retirement account. So, and a 401k is an employer-sponsored plan. So, typically, any individual can, if if you're fortunate enough that your employer that your employer has a 401k, you can participate that in that, and sometimes they'll match that money. And then you also can go on the individual side and do an, a traditional or a Roth IRA for yourself, which that just depends as to your tax situation and income, which is better. So you can do each. The IRAs are typically capped at 5500 or 6500 if you're over the age of 50, and a 401k has a higher contribution limit. So you can actually do both, okay. and it's a great tax strategy. And got with it. that, hey, we've got to go to a break, and I want to get back to some of those questions. Great first two questions. You've been listening to Retire While You Work on News Radio 1510 WLAC. I'm your host, David Adams. And when we come back from break, we're going to take more of your questions. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. And Andrea, before the break, was going through some of our top, most compelling questions of yours throughout the week. Remember that you can come on to retirewhileyouwork.com at any point during the week. Submit your question. We'd love to hear it, and we'll do our best to have it answered on next week's show. Also, you can give us a call at 615-435-3644 with your questions, or if you want to set up an appointment, we'd be happy to, to meet with you in person if, as well, if that's a better fit. So, Andrea, let's go to question number three, I believe. All right. This one's pretty interesting. David, what is loss harvesting and how does it work? And do you recommend it for your clients? Okay. Loss harvesting. That's yeah. Otherwise, it's typically called tax loss harvesting, but I'm following the question here. So yes, this is something that we do for our clients. You know, it really just depends. Like everything else, um, every client situation is unique. And this is something a lot of times that's focused on your higher net worth clients that are more tax sensitive with higher incomes. Um, so we, we're actually doing this now. We're reviewing all of our accounts based on income tax levels for clients and trying to be proactive before you're in. And basically, here's how it works. So let's say somebody has a bunch of gains in their portfolio that they haven't, where they haven't sold anything and they haven't recognized those gains. So we may go through their portfolio and look for, um, or let's say, I'm sorry, let's say they have a bunch of gains they've taken throughout the year and they have capital gains from other investments. We'll go through their investments and, and see if there are anything, any investments that have unrealized losses that we could potentially sell to offset those gains. So let's say they had $50,000 from a capital gain we may be able to go and find a couple of investments that have a $50,000 loss on paper, actually sell those investments to neutralize that tax hit. And then we can, a lot of times we can do what's called a, a wash sale. We're getting really into the weeds here, but this is, this is interesting to me at least, where you can buy another similar investment where you, so you can stay invested, but it doesn't count as, it still allows you to take the loss on one. So there's a lot of strategies there, but that's essentially what tax loss harvesting is. Now, I'll say this, sometimes clients will actually take gains. Now, why would we ever want to take a, a tax gain early? Well, let's say, for example, in a year like this, that they think Donald Trump's going to lower taxes in 2017, and maybe they want to go ahead and realize some of those gains now and pay taxes at what they think is going to be a lower level. Or a higher, or they think taxes are actually going to go um, down. Let's say they think taxes are going to go down next year. They may want to defer and take. But before the election, it was actually with Hillary a lot of people were thinking capital gains were going to go up. So I had clients calling saying, 
let's let's wait and t- let's go ahead and take all the losses now, and then next year let's try to make sure we don't have any gains. Wow, makes sense. No, it make it makes sense. It's just fascinating. I have <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, to summarize that, it's you look at what is what is your tax bracket. Is this a year where you need gains or losses? So if you need losses because you have a bunch of gains, you want to try to offset those. If you are worried about tax rates, you may want to go ahead and advance some of those gains. And we look at that each year. And it's again, it's mainly, you know, I tell clients, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog. And what I mean by that is, sounds a little cheesy, but don't make big investment decisions and just start selling things because you think it's going to help on taxes. It's kind of like when I have clients at the end of the year saying, hey, I need a tax write-off should I go and buy that $100,000 Hummer? Now, that's been a while, but I remember 10 years ago, I had a lot of clients that would go and buy a $100,000 Hummer because they thought it would save on their taxes. And I had to tell them, you know, if you're in a 40% tax bracket, it may save you 40000 on taxes, but that's still a $60,000 Hummer. Right. Do you need a $60,000 Hummer? So tax, you know, a tax write-off does not mean it's free. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to remember. Yeah. So I get that a lot. Great question. What's up next? All right. So this is a pretty involved question. You know, we get a lot of questions during the week from a lot of different people. And I think this one might be the most involved question we've had in a long time. So here we go. David, can you please give me some strategies for how I can get our retirement plan back on track? My husband and I plan to retire in late 2017, but my husband was laid off last week after 38 years at the same company. Mm, Okay. The likelihood of him getting a new job at 62 years old is very slim considering he was in sales. The COBRA health coverage is very expensive, and we had only carved out a certain amount every month for these costs. In all, we have just over a million dollars in retirement savings, and my husband has a small pension from his employer, but we were counting on his salary to cover our living expenses for this year, around $50,000. I am employed part-time, but mostly just to cover our mad money expenses. (laughs) Mad money, I like that. Any advice you could offer would be very helpful. Okay, so a lot of of pieces to this question, but I'll tell you, this is a very common situation. You know, we'll see somebody that gets laid off at 60 or 62, or maybe it's health health reasons, or they just flat out decide they can't take it anymore. Uh, You know, my father retired actually around 63, and there's that hole between 62, 63, and 65 with Medicare, and that's a... That's a big one, something that we really have to look at. So, you know, and this and this listener is one of the few that still has um, that dinosaur called a pension from his employer, which is a nice thing. Yeah, so that, seems like it. So it's that, such a small pension. She didn't give us a, a, an amount there, but right. any pension is better than no pension. Got and their living expenses are around 50000 So at first, I'd always start with this. What is their total budget? This should always be the first question. And I always have clients do an exercise where we, do, we go through their needs and their wants. So let's say that this client said, you know, it's going to cost me $50,000 a year for our basic expenses. This is for, you know, the mortgage, paying the utilities, that sort of thing. And we'd like, maybe it's $25,000 of mad money for those, that would be the wants. So maybe that's travel, that sort of thing. So, okay, so they need $75,000. Well, I'd start off by saying, I think you mentioned they had a million dollars in retirement. Is that right? They do. She said they have... Just over a million dollars in a retirement account. Okay, so let's using my uh, my example there, seventy five thousand dollars for their needs and for their mad money. There's a rule of four percent, and we could you know that we could go back and forth on that. Some people think it's three, some people think it's five, but let's stick with four. So you could pull out forty thousand dollars a year from your million dollars in retirement, and over a period of time, assuming you're in a balanced type investment portfolio, you should be over a thirty year period able to maintain. 
that account. That's kind of the premise around 4%. So that's $40,000 a year this couple could pull out um, towards that $75,000. Now, if they need $75,000, they probably are actually going to have to make about $90,000 because there's taxes, right? Right. So that's $90,000. they are taking $40,000 out of their investments, okay? So they probably need another $50,000 or so to net around $75,000 after taxes and all. So the big question is, can they cover this? You know, with that small pension and, you know, are they going to be able to, you mentioned maybe doing some sort of part-time work or maybe one of them can go and find a way to cover that gap. And, and this, this also has to include COBRA or some type of health insurance, which is, you know, that can be expensive. My dad's, I think, was fifteen or $1,800 a month on COBRA to kind of bridge the gap until Medicare. Right. It's just tremendously expensive. So healthcare is definitely a big issue in this situation. You know, so can he go back to work and maybe he can even make $20,000 a year or 30000 something to bridge the gap? Or maybe he considers taking Social Security a little early. This We talked about Social Security before the break. This may be an example where you take Social Security early because you don't want to pull out too much money out of your retirement. So I could go on and on about this. It really just is a, it's a... It's an equation that we write up on the whiteboard in our office of saying, what's your pension? How much can you pull out of your investments? Are you willing or able to go back to work? What does that look like? And we just kind of, we fill the gap. And the worst case may be, you know, there's not enough money to go around. And maybe the mad money, as she called it, the $25,000 of mad money, maybe that has to go down to 10000 or 15000 right. It means we're not going to travel as much, that sort of thing. So. It usually becomes pretty clear when you do the, the trade-off analysis. Every every decision we make in life, and certainly with money, has trade-offs. And so um, that's how I'd answer that question. Does that help? It it definitely helps. And I will say this. We had a, a family friend in a, in a similar situation, and he was in his 60s and got laid off. He went to work at Starbucks part-time, but he worked about 20 hours a week at oh, Starbucks. Yeah. He loved it. It kept him really young. And they give full insurance benefits even to their part-time employees including their families. Now, that is incredible. I mean, that's a reason. I mean, that is, like I said, the biggest gap. And that's as a financial advisor that stresses me out more than anything because you, it's an ever-changing number on health insurance premiums. So if you can find whether it's Home Depot, I know, does that, maybe at 30 or 35 hours, Starbucks, as you mentioned, those are great ways to not only fill that gap, but also to continue to stay connected and keep relationships, keep the mind, the mind going, um, which can really help later in life. Well, everybody apparently walks into the local Starbucks and says, what's up, Pops? And they all call him Pops. So he has a whole generation of additional kids and grandkids who rely on him to give them hot chocolate and take care of them every well, day. What a great thing for the Home Depots and the Starbucks to get those type of employees that have worked their entire life and um, can come in with a smile every day. That's, Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. Well, great questions. We're going to go to a break. And remember that you can submit your question to us throughout the week at retirewhileyouwork.com and click contact us and we'll do our best to answer those. And after the break, we've got our special guest, Teddy Pins with Radius Residential Partners to talk about this Nashville real estate market and things you can do as a buyer and a seller to best protect yourself when you make your biggest purchase of your life, real estate. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Retire While You Work. I'm your host, David Adams. And before the break, we were answering some of your most compelling questions throughout the week that we received. And you can always go to our website at retirewhileyouwork.com and submit those questions to us. We'll do our best to get them answered. Now, something I like to do in our last segment every week is bring in a guest 
that we think and also that we hope can help to better get you in that retire while you work mindset. And today we're going to talk about real estate, which is a very big, uh, they say it's one of the biggest expenses that anybody ever makes. So it definitely affects a financial plan. And we have Teddy Pins of Radius Residential Partners here in studio today. Hello, Teddy. Hey, David. Great to be here. Glad to have you. Well, first of all, just give us an update of this Nashville market, kind of a High-level overview snapshot, and now with the election over, you know, do you think there's going to be an uptick in home sales, or are things slowing down? Well, we were all waiting, right, and with the election to uh, complete. I think some people were, as they say, waiting in the wings, uh, considering how that could affect their buying power. And um, but we had a twofer that's working for us here in the real estate market, and that is seasonality and time of year. Okay. So it's it's hard in some ways to equate is the market shifting because of the election, uh, election years tend to always be a, an interesting cycle. And we see that there is some tentative buyers uh, considering what they're going to do and when. So, But of course, the time of year as well, we, school is back in session and we're certainly in the fall and coming upon the holidays. And so we're well into the holidays, if you will. And so People have uh, – the market has slowed a little bit. But okay. to say whether it's the election or rates, of course, we, we have seen that interest rates have gone up a little bit. <clears throat> a little bit, excuse me. And, um, of course, as the stock market goes up and bonds, and that's kind of your business. But uh, we have seen things slow a little bit since October. And it kind of shifted pretty quickly here in the Nashville market. So have you heard clients you know, concerned about – yelling increase in rates over the next year and what that means for mortgage rates. Is that already a concern or is it a rate still so low that it still hasn't really surfaced? It's a discussion, but I think it's more from the mortgage lender's consideration of whether we were going to go into a refi boom. And so with the rates not going down <clears throat> and potentially they've gone up a little bit, they're not seeing that as much. So really they're focusing on buyers right, right and purchasing power. So we're not seeing it. They haven't gone up significantly to where buyers, I think, are um, con too concerned, but it does affect their, their buying power. And of course, time of year. Again, people have other considerations for their, for their lifestyle and needs right now. So buying homes, we see more for people that are relocating or have been on the hunt. Right. I mean, and historically, rates are still dirt cheap. I mean, back in Absolutely. the 80s, they were, my parents said their first house, I think, was 12 or 13 percent. So whether it's three and a half or four and a half or five, I mean, it's going to be a while before we more than likely see rates Abs quite a bit higher. Absolutely. Yeah. These, these rates are really something to take advantage of. And if someone was considering buying within the next couple of years, I would get that plan together now. So now that the anxiety and the uncertainty of the elections out of the way, um, it's also so historically the spring has really been the best time. Is that to, to list a house, or is there a lot of stats yes. to back, back there? Yeah, the the spring is is some of the best time, but there are some people that consider, well, I'm not gonna. Nobody buys a home in the in the winter, and that's not true. I've sold a home uh, on Christmas Eve. And uh, there are people moving during those times. Of course, there's relocation, and Nashville's a booming market for that. So there are people moving here and are looking for homes. But uh, the spring, when the summer when the summer breaks, and there, there's even some correlation, they say, to the, the football and the Titans schedule of whether open houses and people start buying if, if the Titans go to uh, the playoffs, playoffs. Which, oh, wow. which is a mixed bag this year. But that's odd. But we've heard that, and we have seen correlation to 
to that. But the, so the spring you, when the weather breaks. Do you cheer for the Titans to go to the playoffs? Or is there a <laughs> conf- conflict of interest I'm sensing? <laughs> you know, I cheer for things that help the local economy. So Good if, the t- if the Titans win, it's really true. I mean, whether I'm a UT fan or not, I mean, it's really about supporting what supports our economy. So have you seen in Nashville, then, Are you, you mentioned, are things kind of peaking or is it really just depend on if you're in the suburb or in the urban core? The suburbs are are still growing at a at a great clip because there is a lot of uh, relocation and demand and, um, happening, and so we're seeing areas north of town, Hendersonville, Goodlettsville, and Spring Hill, Franklin. I mean, they're they are still quite hot. Uh, in in town, we're seeing a lot of building going on as well. And uh, and in town, we've seen a lot of construction happen this year. There's been builders ramping up and buying lots and tearing things down, and so. Uh, we're seeing a lot of inventory coming to market, and that's giving buyers more choice and consideration and maybe confusion as to what's the right buy and place for them to be. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. So the, I guess the verdict's still out as we go and we get through the holidays as to what 2017 is going to look like. It is. It tends to be that that first year, the, the spring and going into summer to see how people react once the inauguration and right. things, he, you know, the, the, the president settles in the seat, if you will. Okay. Well, good. Well, even, you know, even when, you know, I talk to clients about purchasing homes all the time and even with great representation like yourself, you know, we all we all know that clients still make big mistakes and there's a lot of anxiety as a buyer and as a seller and everybody loves lists. So I had read an article recently and um, with five of the top mistakes that sellers make and also five of the biggest mistakes that buyers make. So I'm going to go through through some of these, but I definitely want your spin on them. So one of the a couple of the things I read about from the seller side or, you know, the advice in this article was don't FISBO for sell by owner or, you know, sellers that are improperly preparing their home for sale and showings, meaning maybe they're staying in their home during showings, things like that. I'm sure you can comment on that. You know, or they, you know, they go on social media and they vent about the process too much or they overprice their home. My gosh, I can stop there. I mean, you do this every day. I mean, what are the top five mistakes that sellers make? They've hit... uh They've hit several here. Uh, the ones that I encounter the most, or, the, or I'd say the two, would be improperly preparing their home for sale and showings. There just isn't enough um, consideration that's given to the product that you're taking to market. It would be like uh, taking a, a brand new Mercedes and and you know not giving the floor mats with it, or maybe not giving it a good wash. Absolutely. You know, you really it's time to spit shine and polish. And so when we work with clients, of course, we we take a lot of time with them and bring our crews of people to make sure everything is is clean. Believe it or not, I mean, just cleaning is the cheapest form of way to get it ready. And then paint, caulk, and touch up. So and decluttering too, and staging, right? Big time. Yeah, decluttering, and we go through that process with them as far as light staging. You know, the the garage is a very forgiven space, so that is certainly the place in which, and this is the time to load it up. I joke and say, you know, it's not if, it's when. You are moving, so let's go ahead and pack up, put it in the garage, and uh, label it. If you're not going to be needing it in the next three to four months, uh, you're going to be moving within that time. So being realistic on price is the second. And, um, you know, we often sellers want to do the let's try it and see strategy. Mm-hmm. And I've done that for myself and, and un- <laughs> unwillingly done it with clients. And unfortunately, the market is is astute to that. You know, they're, they um, – the stats don't lie, and and if you try to price something just even ten percent higher, you can drastically reduce your showings. And so you really need to price the market, price within the market, be in the market, not just on the market. Right. 
So being in the market is that sweet spot on pricing. So Ted, if you know in your gut that a house is worth a million bucks and somebody says they want to try to sell it for 1.3, do you do you kind of set a timeline like within the first 30 days if we don't get bites we need to adjust the strategy otherwise it could go stale and Absol- ultimately hurt them is that Absolutely within 21 to 45 days depending okay. upon the price point um, in the area, the market's going to tell you. And some people think, well, I'm just going to wait for the right buyer. But the truth is there's buyers coming into the market all the time. So you need to look at if you're trying to sell your home now, you need to consider that the market is now. It's in the, in the next 60 days, not four months down the road when you're chasing the market down the price change. Right. So I know you said those were the two most important. I found the one uh, staying home during showings to be interesting. Do you get kind of the type A control freaks that want to be in the house and try to do your job for you? <laughs> no, we've come a long way from that. We don't we don't have that too often. So thankfully, yeah, that can make it uncomfortable. Uh, and then for sale by owners, you know, the FISBO, as you hear it called, is um, it's not that that I don't love to help people that want to sell their home themselves. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a fiscally responsible person. It's a lot of money to to hire an expert in this area, but statistically. Uh, they sell for, I think, it's under 15% less than what they would if they had hired an expert after all the expense and time that goes into that process. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, now let's kind of flip it and let's talk about some of the mistakes that you've seen buyers make. And some of the ones that I had found online, uh, always looking for a better deal or falling in love at first sight, overpaying for perfection, um, maybe like in looking for a short sale and considering that as a deal. So I've had tons of clients that want to go to auction or find a short sale because they think they're going to save a lot of money that way or lowballing, making lowball offers. Hey, this house is a million bucks. I'm going to offer 700,000 and see if they bite on it. Um, so what do you, do you agree with some of these or what are the ones you've seen? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, we see these and, um, I would say that the, the top ones here that the that I would say that one of these that isn't covered here is not being pre-approved and financially ready. Oh, that's a good one. So they can be ready to write offers on the right home because when you're going out to look for homes, the right home, if you love it, there's a high chance someone else loves it and it's going to be time to write an offer. And so um, average homes people look at, I mean, it varies dramatically, but typically you don't need to see more than eight homes if your agent's doing their homework to uh, make the decision and, and see what rises to the top. So being ready, pre-approved and financially ready, looking at what savings and closing costs and things you're going to need, a good agent can sit down and a mortgage lender and get you prepared for that process. So to me, that is number one. Okay. Uh, the second is uh, unrealistic offers. Certainly- Low-balling. Uh, Low-balling, as you hear it called. And um, what I try to encourage our buyers to do is to structure an offer that is based upon information we gather from the seller and the listing agent as to motivation and consideration of that seller. Okay. So there's a series of questions and due diligence that we go through with that seller to make sure that what what motivation considerations they have. And then we structure an offer that's aggressive but shy of offensive. And of course, okay. that's an that's arbit- the interesting balance, right? <laughs> it is. But you get a lot of insight when working and talking to that listing agent about where that could fall, if they've had other offers, um, what's their timeline? So aggressive, just shy of offensive, that's the sweet spot for the offer and, and helps you win the deal. You don't want to you don't want to spank their baby, as I say. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> nobody likes that. That's but that's how it Andrew's about to be, lose it over no, there. No, <laughs> you don't you don't want to be the guy on the plane that smacked the kid, right? right like but, you don't want to be that guy. But that but it is. And I tell them when I go actually meet with sellers, I said, now look when we go through your house, it's nothing personal here. I'm helping you sell your home or preparing it for its next owner. 
not for you. So right. as soon as it doesn't feel like your home, we're on the right track. Absolutely. It's a product, right? Once it's on the market, it's a product for somebody else. That's right. So we've got to get some professional photography and make sure it looks great and right before we hit. All right, Tab, we got a few more seconds here. What, what would be another one, would you say? Is there another one that stood out to you for sellers? Absolutely. Or buy, or buyers, sorry. Yeah, equating short sales with a deal. People say that they, you know, want to I want to buy a foreclosure or short sale. Many times those are not the deals. There's there's reasons why they're in those situations and there could be um, uh, repairs and issues that are not present. Great. Hey Ted, how can our listeners find you throughout the week? They can find me at radiusresidential.com or 615-3787 by BUY. This is Teddy Pins with Radius Residential and Village Real Estate. Thanks, David. Thank you, Teddy. We'll have you back on the show for sure. And thanks for tuning in with us today as always. And if you need to reach me during the week, give us a call at 615-435-3644 or visit retirewhileyouwork.com and submit your question. Talk to you next week. And remember, life is short. Any more important things to worry about than money, and I certainly hope this show helps.